Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Office Hours, Career Pathways for PhDs. My name is Jasmine Goodman, your host. I am excited to share yet another story of a PhD who has successfully transitioned away from academia. But what I want to make a note of is that we're not pro-leaving academia. We're not pro-tenure track. We are pro-you finding a path that works best for you. So let me introduce our guest. He is Dr. Amir Sadeh. He's a Presidential Management Fellow at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, and he earned his Ph.D. in political science at the University of Notre Dame. So give me one moment to bring Dr. Sade to. Hello. How are you? Right. Very nice to meet you. How about yourself? How are you doing? I am great. Thank you so much for being here. So this is also a special interview because Dr. Sade was referred to us by Dr. Marianne Kwakwa, who is our executive producer. And she's also someone that is, a well, she's helped to co-create this series. So you all went to school together at Notre Dame. So what type of student was she? Give me the tea on Dr. You know, <laughs> the funny thing is she was like one of the people that I looked up to as someone who, who got, she knew work-life balance perfectly. Oh, she knew had to work hard, but she also played hard. I can't tell stories out of school, okay. but she was just somebody who like, who just had it together. It seemed like as like a first year and it was, she was doing really great research and she was just somebody who was, she's always been somebody approachable and easy to talk to. And I've always respected that about her. So when she got in touch with me about, you know, the, the podcast, I said, absolutely. Of course I'm, I'm hundred percent down. Awesome. Yes. So I essentially what I'm hearing is that I should have been either more like her when I was an undergrad because I was all work in the doctoral program. I was just stressed out all the time. So it's good to have that balance. (laughs) So now let's jump right in. So the top portion of our segment is called Journey into the Wild. And so I love to learn more about what prompted you to pursue your PhD in the first place. Great. So for me, it was when you are grow up as like a from a Middle Eastern background, you know, immigrant family, um, you get three prescribed jobs you're allowed to have: doctor, lawyer, engineer. Um, so growing up, I sort of had that ex like higher education expectation, um, but it was. I was never going to become a medical doctor. I was never the best at science, Um, but it was always going to be like law degree or graduate school and politics. You know, I, I, I learned a lot about politics. My love of politics came from my dad, you know, when we were growing up, you know, we would watch the news together and we would talk about it. And that's really how we bonded. So political science was always something I was interested in, you know, always. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I, was graduating undergrad, I sort of, I took a gap here and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And uh, my parents really wanted me to go to law school. I didn't. Um, I, you know, I didn't want to become a lawyer. I knew I didn't want to become a lawyer. And I knew if I was going to go to law school, I was going to be doing it to do something else. Um, But politics had always been in the back of my mind. It had always been the thing that I came back to. And um, I think there's, there was definitely a part of me, especially after four years at, at Rollins College, my alma. Um, I met and had some amazing professors and my advisor, um, Don Davison, was an amazing man. And um, he sort of helped guide me into that direction. And um, he was actually the reason why I applied to Notre Dame. Uh, he, that was his old alma mater. Um, and yeah, I just decided to go down that route because I was always interested in politics. I always wanted to learn more about politics. And I thought, 
wouldn't it be great to get paid to just talk and teach about politics the rest of your life, right? And I think that that sort of cemented me going down that that route and ultimately um, applying for grad school and going to uh, the University of Notre Dame for my uh, PhD. Now, at what point did your goal shift in terms of what you wanted to do with the doctorate? So you mentioned talking and teaching. So how did it evolve once you got into your program? You know, I think the first day orientation, that, that those orientation days, we had a, I would describe it as a come to Jesus, read the riot act moment where it was like, okay. hey, this is a top 30, this top 50 rank 35 program. You need to expect that you're not going to be teaching at a, you know, top 10 university. You need to be sure that you do get your, you know, publications in. And, you know, it was really like cementing all of the, all of the barriers that we were going to have to get a good tenure track job. And I think even from the beginning, I was like, okay, I should prepare a backup plan, you know, just in case that, you know, and I think as time went on, you know, I, there's that idealism when you start grad school or when you you know, think of becoming a professor, it's like, oh, I get to teach and I'll be, you know, uh, yeah. get to talk about politics all the time. or get to talk about what I love and I get to research interesting things. And mm-hmm. um, as you go on, you learn, you know, you, you grow up a little bit and you learn about the bureaucracy that comes with being in a grad program and the stresses that come with it and the anxiety that's sort of put upon you and just things like imposter syndrome and all that. Um, I think as time went on, I sort of realized that, you know, I, I knew that I loved political science. I loved teaching. There were, but there were things that I didn't love about grad school and academia that I knew that it was sort of tilting between the two over time as to, okay, which one is this worth, you know, is the good stuff worth dealing with the bad stuff and the hard stuff? And, um, I sort of had like a breaking point in the in my the middle of my program where I just had been through a lot of stress and mental health stuff. And I was like, I I don't love being a professor more than I value the things that I've come to care about. You know, when I was an undergrad, I was like a lot of students where even high school grades fixed. That was the most important thing. I want to be high achieving, high success. And when you go to grad school, you realize, oh, I'm not the smartest person in the room, right? (laughs) There are a lot of smart people. Yeah. yeah. And you realize you have to read, if you, if that's been your sense of sense of identity, your sense of understanding of yourself, it like really shakes you to your core and Mm -hmm. it makes you realize, oh, you know, who am I? Right. Um, And I think just ultimately all of those things sort of came together and made me realize, you know, I don't want to have to sacrifice the rest of my life. Oh, you're a tenure track professor, but it's at, you know, you have to live somewhere where you don't want to live, right? Maybe it'd be like in Oklahoma or Idaho or whatnot. Um, And I'd be away from family. Like there, just all the things that I already sacrificed to get to that point. I think I I saw the the long road and I Mm -hmm. said, I, I'm not willing to sacrifice anymore. I need to figure yeah. out, I'm going to stay because I want my PhD. I want that. I knew I wanted that thing, but I'm like, I don't want the rest of it. If that means I have to sacrifice all of the other things I care about, which are like family and mm-hmm. hopefully finding somebody and getting married and, and having kids and 
knowing that if I tr- wanted to become a tenure track professor, I'd be having, having to, I'd have to give up a lot and I have to reconfigure my life around that goal. Yeah. And that's really an important part of the conversation because people often think that when you get a PhD, it's just, you go to school, you graduate, you get a job and that's it. But there are so many sacrifices along the way that I almost think that everyone has like this moment of reckoning in their program when they have to decide, okay, what actually are my priorities? It's no longer just to, you know, have the best grades and have, you know, all of these things on paper. One thing that a friend of mine shared in my cohort, as I was stressing one of the many, many times, and she said, Jasmine, your goal is to graduate whole. And when she said that, it was like, okay, that makes sense because I felt like I was breaking my back, just killing myself, trying to just get all of the work done. And so that helped me to reframe just my approach to school. So once you had your moment, how did you, what were your next steps once you realized that, okay, this is not the right fit for me? How did you go about exploring what was going to be a better option for you? Well, I felt I got lucky that I had that realization around my third year. Because I think a lot of people, they sometimes hold on to the maybe, maybe like I'm going to try and white knuckle it and keep white knuckling through it. And then they get to about, you know, that fifth year or they're getting onto the job market and then things sort of hit them. Yeah. Um, I felt lucky that it was in the middle of my program where I'm like, okay, I am not going to go down the field of academia. I've mm-hmm. made that decision and I'm going to start exploring what else I can do, you know? And it was interesting because, you know, I would tell people as a fourth year, as a fifth year, they, they would naturally ask, oh, so you're doing your dissertation. What do you hope to do next? And I said, oh, well, you know, probably going to look for something either nonprofit or government work. And they're like, oh, so you're not going to continue. And there was almost this like sad feeling. They were kind of mourning for you. And I'm like, no, you don't have to like, that's, you don't have to do that. I'm fine with it. Okay. You know, but I think it's so built in. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's built into the system. Like, of course you're going to get your PhD and become a professor and do, you know? Um, So it almost sort of, it, it was kind of funny because I think it sort of emboldened my decision a little bit more. I'm like, no, I'm okay. Like, I appreciate it. I, I get that thinking, but no, I think I'm going to be fine. Um, and really, it just started searching, okay, so if you're not going to get a job in academia, what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, you know, I started working with the career service at my age and just just started searching, okay, what do you do with the PhD in political science that isn't becoming a professor? Um And so I had a few general ideas sort of coming into it. Um, Things like, okay, there's nonprofit work, there's think tank work, there's local government work, there's federal government work. And I just sort of slowly looked at all those avenues and said, okay, let me, let me explore. You know, I, for the longest time, I had this trajectory of graduate high school, graduate college, finish grad school and get my PhD. I think it was the first time in a really long time where I'm like, oh, I can explore. There isn't like a pre-prescribed route to go through. Okay. It's scary, but also kind of interesting and fun. Now with that, so you tapped into the resource at Notre Dame. What were some other resources that you used along the way? Or even if it's not just resources, what about strategies that you use to kind of map out this exploration phase of your career? Well, definitely um, the, the number one was utilizing the sources at resources at the college. Um, and I think, you know, using career services as much as possible is, is always to your benefit. Um, I think also, you know, the, 
a lot of it was just going on LinkedIn, creating a LinkedIn profile, seeing what even jobs are out there, right? What are some of the basic requirements? You know, sometimes you, you are just trying to figure out, okay, where, how do I market my skills? I think grad school, a lot of times they don't do a good job explaining to you how your skills are very marketable outside of academia, right? So Mm -hmm. it it was, it was trying to search and and figure out, okay, where do I, where do my skills fall into a work set outside of, you know, being a professor? Um, A lot of that was just internet Googling, but LinkedIn for sure, career services for sure. Um, And talking to um, professors and my advisors, people who I knew um, would be supportive of my decision. Cause of course not everybody's going to be, everybody's going to try and convince you, what are you doing with your life? Like the, you're here, you're so close to getting your doctorate. Like, what do you, you know, you, and I was lucky that I had people in my corner who were like, Oh, that's totally cool. Like, what do you, what are you thinking? Like, what do you want to do? You know? And sometimes it was just having somebody just ask, well, what are you interested? You know? Right. So those were, you know, some of it was internet stuff, some of it was career services, and some of it was just having really great advisors um, and, and professors just to talk to and say, so what do you do after this thing? Right, right. And thinking back on my experience, some of my most productive and most productive conversations that left me feeling just emotionally supported was just dropping by my professors during office hours and just saying, hey, I don't know what I'm doing today. (laughs) What's going on? How do I do this? So having those relationships. But what I also heard was that it seems like you had a really strong sense of self and you were aware enough to know that, okay, you all have this perception of what I'm doing, but I know that I need to do something opposite and I'm okay with that. So if anything I wanted to, if I want to emphasize to those who are watching is just knowing what you need and being okay with the fact that what you need or what you want can look very different from what somebody else is doing and making peace with that. Because a lot of times we start to compare ourselves to, well, this person's going down the tenure track. This person has a book deal. This person is doing all these things, but is that what you want? Is that what you want right now? You know, asking yourself those questions. So you're not, you know, on the other side of the country, far away from your family, working in a job that's not fulfilling to you. I 100% agree. I mean, I, I think to, to to even simplify it for myself, it was follow your bliss. That was the thing that I would tell myself all the time whenever I felt that I was like, was I, am I doing the right thing? And I would just have to tap into myself and say, okay, you, what do you want? And what do you value? I think that's the thing. Sometimes we get like, I think sometimes we equate the job or the success for what we value. And I think sometimes we forget that we have to sometimes tap in and be like, well, what do you value? Like, do you want this job because it's job security? Well, job security can be in a lot, you know, you can find it in a lot of different places, right? Um, Do you want this job because of, you know, whatever reason, right? So I think it, it took me taking the time and, Therapy is great for this um, to just, yeah, to just like figure out what do I really want in this world? What do I care about? What do I value? Um, and then seeing where I can sort of find that. Um, and so, yeah, I think follow, follow your bliss has always been like my go to to try and re- remind myself of that. Yes. And one quick PSA for everyone watching. We are pro mental health support here. So if I know when I was in school, 
every Friday at two o'clock, I would have my meeting with my therapist, Olivia. She would help me just work through all the things. So that's something that I've noticed that it's important to have these conversations. One, while you're in the program, you need to have that support. But when you're thinking about taking what some deem to be a drastic turn in a different direction in your career, you absolutely want to have that support. So PSA for everybody watching, don't be afraid to go talk to a therapist. It is okay. 100%. And especially at your university, because it is going to be covered, most probably covered under your health insurance. Do it. It it literally saved my life. It was one of the best things I ever did for myself. Um, And I know, especially like I came from immigrant parents. They did not were not okay with that. They had all of the stigma in their brains as to like what that means. Like, oh, you're not crazy, Amir. You know, why are you? And I would just say 100%, like, even if you're not supported 100% by the people around you, um, if you feel like you need to talk to somebody and those services are available, 100%, it can really make the difference, especially in grad school. So I would just adding on to that PSA as well. Now, tell me about your first job. So once you, you defend your dissertation, you graduate, what happens after that? So I... Graduates. So, so I finished my five years and then I, I, I graduate August, 2020 and it is the middle of COVID. And luckily the way, yeah, luckily the way that our our program is set up is that they had a five plus one. So if you get, if you got done in five years, you get a one year postdoc. So my first job was essentially my postdoc. Um, and I was working at Notre Dame as a, as a professor and I was teaching one class a semester and I will say, like, I, I don't want to gloss over the postdoc because I will say it 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 gave it has given me the sense of closure or the sense of like fulfillment that now that I'm doing something outside of academia now, I feel like, okay, like I did the thing. There's a part of me that always is like, okay, I can say that I was a professor at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Um, I also I'll talk about like what I did before I get to got to my position now. Mm-hmm. Um but it was something that made me feel like, okay, great. And, you know, part of me was also worried about not having health insurance during a once in a century yeah. pandemic. Yeah. So, so I did that. And then after that year, I came back home. Okay. And for like the first two months, I didn't want to do anything at all. I was so tired. I felt so burnt out. Yeah. Um, and my mom was a little bit like, listen, I don't want you to do anything um, that you feel you're not ready for, but I have a client, my mother cuts hair. So she talks okay. to people and she's like, I have somebody, she, there's an opening at Valencia college. Mm-hmm. They're looking for an adjunct. They're looking for adjunct poli sci professors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, if you don't think you're ready for it, fine, but I think it'd be good to, so that you have something to do. Mm-hmm. And she was absolutely right. Like, I, I look back and at first I didn't want to, like, I don't really want to go and do work again. Like I'm really so tired and burnt out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ended up being a lifesaver because I think it, it allowed me to sort of feel, you know, useful. It made me go out and do things. Like I had to, you know, use my brain a bit. I wasn't just stuck at home the whole time. Yeah. So I, I sort of took a year um it ended up being a year, but I just worked as an adjunct at Valencia College. Um, it was just you know, community college in the area in Orlando, Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say it it radically changed my perspective 
when it came to teaching in the sense that I realized my experience at Notre Dame as a postdoc was not the norm. Um, okay. It, you know, it, it's just, it's different. Like when you, when I was working at Valencia, you know, I really, I enjoyed my students. I love my students, but mm-hmm. you would learn that the stu- the issues that my students at Notre Dame were facing were not the same st- issues my students at Valencia were facing, yeah. right? Yeah. I had students who say, oh, professor, this is the day. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to make class. My, my supervisor won't let me off of work, so I have to work a shift. And that was the first time I ever had that as like this is reason why a student couldn't come to class. At yeah. Notre Dame, of course, a lot of those students are on scholarship. Mm-hmm. We're worrying about the finance. Uh, but at a community college, those are things that students are, are worried about, right? They are mm-hmm. having to juggle professional life, like work life on top of trying to go to school. Um, mm-hmm. And that was something that like changed my, changed my sort of thinking about, okay, when you, teaching is not a uniform, it's not a monolith, yeah. depending on where you're at, you're, you have to make sure you're, you're dealing with or, and helping your students with the unique issues that they deal with. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so I did that for a year. Um, we can kind of talk more if you have any other questions. Yeah, on. no. Well, one mom for the win. So she got she referred you for the position. Gotta love mom. But then also too, you're the second person that's mentioned kind of having time to reset at a community college. So Dr. Brandell Mills Cox, she actually left a chain track position. She was our first person that we interviewed. And she just took some time to figure out what she wanted to do when she taught at a CC. And I think that's a great thing because I taught at a community college when I was in my program and I loved my students. I loved the mm-hmm. environment. There was just, it was the right environment for me at that time. And I think when we think about, you know, the, the pedigree of institutions and types of institutions, community colleges often don't get the best rap, but they have great students. They just have students that have different life circumstances that didn't allow them to go to different types of, of colleges. So I think that's a, um, a great point to be able to have that experience, understand that teaching is very different, but then also have time for yourself to just kind of personally and professionally reset because you need that time. And it didn't help. Um, for Just for reference, I graduated May 2020. So I defended April 24th, 2020. And I was just like, what is happening outside? The world is on fire and I didn't want to do anything. So, you know, for those who are watching, if you, you know, were in a PhD program during the pandemic, if you had to defend at that time, it's okay to take a break because you've done a very hard thing during a very hard time in just the world. And it's okay to have that time. So, once you you did the year at the at Valencia College, kind of tell me what were your next steps after that? So in the middle of that year, um, when I was still at Notre Dame, for instance, I had heard about the PMF program through the career services people. So during my postdoc, I, I knew I had heard the Presidential Management Fellowship. I heard that this was an option. Oh, if you are looking into getting into government, this might be something that you would be interested in. Um, and so I had heard about it and I was like, okay, well, I will add that to the things that I apply for. Like I will definitely, you know, when I, once I feel rejuvenated over that summer, I'm going to, you know, I'll start this job at Valencia. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to apply for the PMF. And um, so I had applied in September, 2021. Right. So it was like right early on, right. I was, I was, as I was starting at Valencia, I also was, okay, I need to start putting some little seeds out there and seeing what else is out there. Um, and I 
The, so the way the PMF works is that um, at first you take a, an exam, it's like a test, essentially it's like a civil service exam, it's mm-hmm. trying to understand your personality and, and, and um, how you sort of answer those sort of questions. Um, and then you become a, if you, if you pass that sort of section, you become a finalist. And I didn't think I was even going to become a finalist because it's it's a pretty competitive sort of program. And my dad, like a week and a half before we were supposed to find out we were finalists, he was like, you're going to get it. You'll be one. I'm like, dad, how do you know? Like, how yes, do you know? Yes. I love them. Very supportive. Very. And they always just say the right thing. They're like, come here. Like, I know you and I know how passionate you are. And you are the type of person that should be in government. Mm. So love my dad, love my mom. And lo and behold, I became a finalist, um, which was great. It was exciting. But um, you become a finalist, but then you have one year where you have to actually land a job. So the benefit of the PMF program is you it's it's designed for people who within two years of graduating from their law school or professional degree program, you can apply. Right. Um, You become a finalist. And if you become a finalist, you have one year to land a position in government. And the benefit of the PMF program is that you have a special job board where only other PMFs of that year are applying for those jobs, are applying for those positions. Um, So it sort of gives you a bit of an advantage, right, when you're out of cold applying to USA jobs, Mm -hmm. which it is really hard. I've, I've heard, and I've sort of found it's difficult to get into government cold without some sort of connection or some sort of, you know, thing that helps. And this, the PMF program sort of helped says, okay, this person, they are, they'd be fit for government work. And, but then you still have to get the job. So like, it was great that I was a finalist, but like, okay, now I actually still have to get a job. Mm-hmm. And it took about, I'd say about a year from the time that I first took that test in like September uh, before I finally landed a position. And um, the statistic I heard was about 65, maybe 70% of the people who were finalists end up becoming fellows. So that's okay. what I am now. So I mm-hmm. not only passed the test, I, you know, but I also have, um, I now actually have a job. Um, and it was really stressful those, I'd say nine months from January till about September um, when I was just like, you know, at first you're like, oh, I have a year, you know, I'll apply to a few things. Then March comes around and you still haven't heard anything and you get a little bit antsy and then it's May and I'm like, okay, now I'm just going to apply for everything and anything that I'm marginally qualified for and or marginally interested in. Um, and funny enough, the, the way that I ended up where I am now, so I, I work at HUD right now, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, um, it was actually related to my dissertation. So my dissertation um was mobilization in Maria, demographic change in Florida and the future of American politics. And I specifically was studying the Puerto Rican migrant community in central Florida before and after Hurricane Maria and trying to understand the impacts um, of of demographic change on state and national politics. Got it. One of the issues that 
became glaring as I did my qualitative work and doing a lot of interviews and, and, and field research was affordable housing. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize just how bad not only affordable housing in general is, but in my own backyard, Central Florida and Florida in general, just mm-hmm. very difficult to find any sort of affordable housing. And I think that those sort of things that I learned, those sort of interviews I had always stayed with me. It was one of the things that I made sure to highlight in my dissertation. And I kind of knew from the get, okay, well, HUD is going to be one of the top places I should apply for. Um, And after tons of applications and numerous interviews, um, I finally found a position um, at the Office of Housing and the Federal Housing Administration. So that's where I'm at now. I've just started working September 26th, so it's all still fairly new, um, okay. but it's been good. Now, tell me, there's a lot there that I want to kind of tackle and get into. So what was your process for translating your academic CV into a resume for a government role? What were some changes that you had to make in terms of framing your experience? Well, some of it is... I would highly recommend anybody who wants a job in government to use a government format resume. So there is specifically a a way that the federal government wants you to lay out your sort of resume information. That was one of the big things that I, because I thought, oh, I'll just change this into a resume. And then in the process, you're like, no, there's a specific sort of way they want it laid out. And a lot of it is like, you know, you know, you're, there's a good chance that your resume is going to be going through a computer and they're checking for keywords and then it'll go, you know. So that was one of the big things. It's like, okay, I need to make sure this is just technically formatted the right way. Okay. But now, I think also find that template. Sorry to cut you off there. How did you find that template? Was that a made available through career services? Was that a I, Google search? I believe it was a Google search. It was something okay. that I found. And also I ended up having a friend of mine. It was actually my brother's friend who was also in the process of the PMF. He sent me it. He sent me his copy um, mm-hmm. that he had proofed by his advisor. So okay. yeah, but it's something you can easily search online. I believe you can even find it on like the OPM website, the office of personnel management website. But mm-hmm. um, so that's definitely one thing. Definitely. If you're interested in getting to government work, you know, make sure that your resume is sort of government approved. Mm-hmm. But also, too, it was it was really sitting down and looking at the positions, like looking at the jobs that I want and say, OK, what are they looking for? And what is my facsimile? Like, what is my thing? It's like, well, OK, are you able to analyze information? It's like, well, absolutely. I've, I'm not only analyzing data on my day to day, but all of the lit review work. I mean, just doing literature review in and of itself has so many skills that you maybe mm-hmm. don't granted ability to read complex literature being able to synthesize that information in a cohesive manner being able to understand that information right and being able to talk about it like public speaking can you take that information put it into a presentation and then talk about it in front of people those are some really great skills that i think a lot of academics they take for granted as well that's just part of the job and i'm mm-hmm. like no like, those are skills that you should highlight because yeah. individually they're incredibly important Right. So it was really studying the job descriptions, breaking down, okay, well, what do these sort of jobs all look for? Um, mm-hmm. And at times that meant like changing, you know, tweak, 
you know, tinkering around with the, the resume here and there. But um, overall, I think after a while, you sort of start realizing, okay, they are looking for these sort of analysis skills, these sort of quantitative skills, these sort of public speaking or writing skills or whatnot. And you just sort of, you know, you can, you translate that. And I think that, it, but yeah, I think it sometimes it just takes like, okay, what do I know? And then thinking, okay, well, what does this mean that I know? Okay. Now, what was your preparation like for interviewing? Did you go in with a presentation? Did you have a portfolio? How did you prepare for a face-to-face conversation about roles? Or Zoom to Zoom. Um, Zoom to Zoom, right. um, So a lot of it was sitting down and first really analyzing the position. And a lot of times if you read the job description, you sort of know, you can intuit the questions that they are going to ask because they're going to be related to the job description or like the expectations. Like those, they will, and some of the questions, you know, they're, they're, I feel like they're very common questions too, where it's like, oh, you know, um, what do you care about? in like a working environment or, you know, I actually, I didn't, I thought I would hear a lot more of like, what is your biggest weakness? And you don't, they don't really ask that. They, they, it's like a stereotype that you think that's not necessarily what they're always asking. Um, a lot of times they're just, they want to ask the things that they're looking for. Right. Um, so a lot of it was just sitting down and I lucky that I had my brother who has his own interviewing experiences um, to just sit down and I created about, like 10 questions that I prepared for ahead of time. Not something that I could like, I like memorize by any means, mm-hmm. but like sitting down methodically and thinking about, Oh, what is um, like, Oh, they, they want somebody to, for instance, I'm working at HUD. Right. Um, and my position is the office of housing. Okay. Well, they're going to want to know why are you interested in this position? Like, why are you interested in the like mission of this organization? And it's going to, it's good to just sit down and write three sentences, not to like memorize, but just to like, okay, why do I care about this position? Why am I interested? Um, and I would be able to talk about my experiences in my dissertation. Is that the reason why I'm interested in HUD is because I already know about, you know, even in my own small sense, the issues that come with affordable housing and mm-hmm. how hard it is for people to find a place to live and how important a place to live is to your emotional stability, financial security, all of those sort of things. Um, and then it just became like, I guess was getting able to talk about myself and what I love, right? So I think that a lot of that, for me, a lot of the preparation was just thinking about, you know, what is on the sort of job descriptions and then taking the time to, to prepare, you know, um, to the point where, you know, my, I just have my brother like ask me the questions, you know, the night before. And I was letting you talk about it until I get to a point where I was just talking conversationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of really helps. And really you, you want to try as best as you can to go into an interview is just being like, you know what, I already have an idea of what they're going to ask. And, even if I, even if they ask me something I don't know, I know enough about why I want this position or why I care about this position that I can, I can finagle something. I can say something because I know deep down, I'm just having a conversation. I'm not preparing for a test. I'm not preparing, like there is no right answer. The, the answer really is, is just how can I convey the stuff that I, I genuinely care about in a way that doesn't come off as rambling as somebody who 
can be very talkative and just tend to ramble. You know, I love a good ramble myself, so that is okay. (laughs) One thing that's important about what you've just said, and it's really been a theme in interviews that we've heard so far, that it's important to be conversational about your work and you don't want to come off as too cold or too technical, but just talk like how we're having a conversation right now. That's the best way to approach your work so that people can understand, because what you don't want to do is have like that barrier between, you know, you're so academic that you're not able to translate that work into everyday application. So I love that you brought that up Um, for our viewers. You will hear an interview with Dr. Amber Hamilton. She also talks about how when she's in her role, She's able to, you know, just ha- make it conversational. So you're not, you know, the too much of a nerd or too, too much wonky. of an activist wonky in the room. Right, right. Now you go through the process, you land the job. What was the first day like? Were there jitters? Were we excited? How did we oh, feel? It was total nervousness. It was like, it was, again, like, you know, I think imposter syndrome never leaves you, right? Especially mm-hmm. when it's something new and you're like, did they, did they make a mistake in hiring me? Like what is go? you know, and, it, and it's a different world too. You know, I, you know, I started off with orientation. The orientation days were cool and they were fine. And I finally got into the office and I'm scared as all hell because mm-hmm. I've had to go through trying to get all my documents in order and getting everything in. And I'm in like a, this government building and I'm like, Oh my God, like this is real. Like, I'm not, yeah. It's like, it's like, I'm not just like a, a, in grad school anymore. Like Mm -hmm. I'm doing the thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So there was, there was a lot of those jitters and like, I don't want to screw up. I don't want to screw up. Cause I think that you, if you're a lifelong student, if you will, you know, Oh, I know how to do, I know how to ace a test or I know how to study for a test. I know how to, but being in government or having like a typical nine to five were very foreign things to me. Like it was never sort of the stuff that I had. So in the beginning it was sort of like a fish out of water, like, okay, don't say the wrong thing. Don't do the wrong thing. How can I learn? Um, And I will say one of the things that I've had to do personally throughout this time is intentionally remind myself to give myself grace. Cause I think we are so hard on ourselves as academics because of the nature of academia. And sometimes it's also just a personality thing. And I think that if you don't a hundred percent know something or you don't feel you have a handle on it, you feel like you're in the, on the back foot and it makes you really scared and makes you really nervous and really anxious. Um, so I think, you know, even reminding myself, even now that I'm, I'm a month in, I'm dude, you're only just a month in. Like you're, there's still tons of stuff you need to learn. Um, and it's okay. It's okay to ask questions and it's okay to not know. Um, Cause that's the whole point is to learn and to teach and stuff. So um, the beginning was stressful and anxious and scary. Now it's not as stressful, anxious and scary, um, but you know, it's, it's still a learning process. Now, what is that culture shift like from academia, super flexible, you're basically in charge of your own day, to now working in a corporate or government role? What, is that, what does that look like? What does it feel like? You know, it, for instance, you know, when I was, when I was in academia, you know, I would be able to freely talk about my work with my friends and my family. They wouldn't know what I'm talking about, but I could talk about, you know, just like talk about whatever. 
Um, now I don't, I don't necessarily have that luxury where I can just willy nilly talk about the stuff that I'm doing. Cause a lot mm. of that stuff is secret and, and, and privileged and stuff for, for and confidential. Um, so also another one of the differences, and I actually talked about this with, with my supervisor at the time, um, or one, my new supervisor. And I said, you know, it's interesting when I would go out with my colleagues on a, like a Friday night, and we would inevitably talk about work because academics are horrible about talking about mm-hmm. anything else but the work they do. Mm-hmm. Um, there was camaraderie in the struggle, but we were all doing different things. We were all doing vastly different research assignments. Some people are international politics or political theory or comparative politics. And then there's us American politics folks. But when I am in government and when I'm talking to the people in my office or, you know, the people, my, my colleagues, my work colleagues, like we might be doing vastly different assignments, but we're all working towards the same goal. Mm. And there's this like feeling of like, you're part of something bigger than yourself. And there's a sort of bond. It's it just, I don't know. It just, it feels different. Like I felt like in grad school, we were like comrades in ours and we we're all struggling together, but in our own little struggles and I think in here, it's like, yeah, we have a lot of work to do. There's an uphill climb. There's a lot of things we're like dealing with, but we're all dealing with them together. And we all have this like singular goal of providing affordable housing and trying to help people get into a home and live the American dream. And I think that it's it's very different. Like there's there's just like that ethos difference that I think is really cool and something that I've, I've noticed. And then there's also just like the technical stuff, like, on a day that I wasn't teaching, I'd sleep until noon because I was being lazy. And I'm like, you know what? That's that's that professor life, right? Yeah. Now, nope, nine to five, um, getting up early. And it took a little bit, but now my body is, by the time it's 1130, I'm already getting sleepy. And if you told that to Amir two years ago, he would he wouldn't believe you because he would be up till three or four in the morning every yeah. other night or whatnot because time meant nothing, right? We've been in COVID, time means nothing. So that, just even that stuff where it's like getting ready for work and commuting, you know, I I, I was able to walk to work when I was at Notre Dame. Uh, I didn't have a car. I still don't have a car, but now I use the Metro and I have to, you know, use public transportation. So I have to configure that into my, you know, commute. So there's a, it, there's a lot of different things. Um, but yeah, I, w- I would I would definitely say the big one was time management. That was the big difference. That was the big change where it was like, okay, I have to learn to use the limited time I have mm-hmm. at night, Monday through Friday, you know? And I will also add what you lose in having all that free time during Monday through Friday, what you gain is not having to think about work on Saturday and Sunday. Which mm. is completely different because in academia, oh, you have you can make your schedule, but there's yeah. always another paper you can write. There's always yeah. more research you can do. There's always papers to you know. It never truly ends, and I think that was one of the biggest problems for me, and also one of the big reasons I left academia was I never felt I had a true break from it. Yeah, but in a nine to five, the great thing is, is after five on the weekend. I close my work laptop and I don't look at it until Monday morning, maybe Sunday night, just in case I don't miss an email. And I think that is 
that in and of itself has been completely worth the change um, out of academia and, and into uh, government work. Right. Now, understanding that you can't share specifics about your role in the work that you're doing, kind of tell me on a day to day basis, you know, when you open your computer Monday morning at 9 a.m., what does that day look like? Uh, so Monday morning, um, I'll have a, an all hands sort of meeting with the people in my office. We were just you know talking about the, the issues, like what's on everybody's plate, what's on everybody's schedule. Um, because I'm a PMF, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm learning a lot about the office. So I'm trying to just sit in on meetings for people in other departments and trying to learn a little bit about, you know, all of the different offices and in HUD and the office of housing, your single family, multifamily, manufactured housing, you know, I'm, I'm very much a newbie at this. So right now is the, like, I'm a sponge, please let me sit in meetings and let me take my notes. And they're very much like, if you have any questions, just let us know. Like at the end of a meeting, I'll, I'll have somebody from the office who was like in the meeting as well be like, hey, what did you understand? Tell me what you didn't understand. And we can talk about it, right? Awesome. Just so, like it's the learning stage right now. Yeah. So it's a lot of sitting in a lot of meetings that quite frankly, I don't understand half of what's being talked about. Um, but slowly as I sit in more meetings, I learn a little bit more about the language and the lingo and I'm learning all the acronyms and whatnot. Um, when I'm not doing that, I'm, you know, um, working on, you know, any assortment of uh, odds and ends of assignments, right? Things that need to be written or edited or whatnot, things that need to be uh, fixed and, and using all of those sort of writing analytical skills, you know, just being a good writer, professional writer that you are when you are an academic, because you have to grade papers and you're so used to grading grammar, you know, doing that sort of thing. Um, and it's, and a lot of it, the, the great thing about what the, the, the people that I work with um, is that a lot of it is, has been choose your own adventure. You know, it's like the first few months you are just trying to learn what's going on. Um, but, you know, if you want to learn more about single family, then here, we'll let you, how about you check out this initiative? And, mm-hmm. or if you're interested in learning about multifamily housing, you know, how about I, we get you connected with these people. And now I'm just slowly getting inched assignments to me. Like, Hey, can you like, look at this? Or like, Hey, sit in this meeting and take notes. I want like a briefing, you know? So it, as time goes on, the ultimate goal of the program is to, have you, you know, within two years, there is a professional development aspect to it, so PMF specifically. So, you know, when I'm not doing my job, you know, I'm also like applying for or, or going to professional development events, and I have to get a certain amount of hours in each year. And really, um, the idea behind the PMF isn't just so that, oh, you have a job in government for two years, so you have, you have two-year fellowship, mm-hmm. um, but it's also to be able to Hopefully you become a project manager and a project leader and somebody who, if you want to, can grow within the organization, right? So it's a mix of having just doing like job stuff, but it's also taking the time and doing a lot of professional development work and learning just how to be, you know, how, to, how does government work and how you can be a good leader um, to hopefully progress throughout the ranks and whatnot uh, if you do decide to continue with government work. Now, 
in your current role, or even just since graduating, because your dissertation did deal with, or there was an element about housing, have you found yourself wanting to continue doing academic research on that? Or have you found ways to publish? Tell me more about what that's been like for you. So I've, I've found some ways to sort of keep that um, going. Um, I have been working on a manuscript to send out or to, you know, to, for, for books, for academic journals and whatnot. Um, I always still tell my advisor, it's like, if there's anything you have, any free projects you have right now, I still have some free time. I might, I don't know what my life is going to be like in six months, but you know, I'm still open to working on research and stuff. And there's also that opportunity down the line where I become, when I, once I become more comfortable with the area where mm-hmm. um, I'd love to still teach a night class at one of the universities in the area, right. Just mm-hmm. to still have that sort of thing. And I think having the experiences of my postdoc at Notre Dame and then still teaching even that one, you know, uh, well, not one, I shot a few classes, but having that Valencia adjunct experience as well. I think it was really nice because I don't feel, I, I don't feel rusty. You know, I still feel like that teaching muscle is there. So um, there are definitely opportunities where I feel like I still can exercise that muscle and still be involved and still have that sort of um, academic fulfillment. But I think also there, there is a part of me where if in two years from now I am fully in the world of like government work and I really like my job and I just don't have any time for academia anymore. And that's sort of it. And that ship has sailed. I'm okay with that mm-hmm. because I feel like I did all the things that I, I personally, mm-hmm. I accomplished the things that I wanted to, yeah. especially during the circumstances of COVID yeah. um, having to try and finish that. I just, I feel at peace. There's still stuff I want to do. I mean, there's still, uh, you know, I still love teaching, but um, I think I'm, I'm finally embracing the journey and not the destination. I think it took a long time, especially in academia where you are focused on the destination for a while. I think right now I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to focus on the here and now and just see whatever happens happens. So you, you've dropped gems. So first is find your bliss. Absolutely the find one. your bliss. Absolutely. <laughs> the second one is also choose your adventure. And then the third um, is just, you know, doing what works best for you. So yeah. now let's talk about our final segment is titled Mentorship Moments. Okay. So let's say, I like to do this. You get a frantic email from someone. They're, maybe they're a PhD candidate. They're trying to figure life out. Dr. Sade, how how am I how do I do this? What do I do next? What advice would you share with someone um, who's reaching out for help? Um are they so so where I guess where in the like course of their sort of thing are they? Yeah. So let's just they're trying to think through their career options. What's some advice that you would give them for landing a job? Um, just anything that you, you share that would be top of mind for you. I would say as cheesy as it is, it's like not like a part of it is like, it's, it's one thing to say, like, follow your bliss, but first you got to know what that is. Mm -hmm. Like I would first tell them like, what do you want to do? And not just like, Oh, like, don't tell me like what job you want, but like, what 
do you want to do? Like what sort of work fulfills you? Like what things are you interested in? You know, um, that's like the first thing. Cause I think, like I mentioned beforehand, we, we put a lot of, we subscribe our values or what we want into a job or a position and it doesn't, you know, it's supposed to fulfill that. But I think that first tapping in and being like, okay, what is the thing that I need? What do I care about? Do I care about being somewhere close to my family? Do I care about, you know, the job security, how much I'm getting paid? Like what are the things that I value? So that's, that's the first thing. And the, and, and when you kind of start there, you realize, okay, there are jobs, there's a variety of jobs that can help fulfill that, right? So I think that's that's the first thing. And then once they've sort of figured out what they want to do, whether it's in academia or, you know, now my experience is outside of it, you know, I would say, I tell them, I would tell them, you know, search, Google, go LinkedIn, like, if you, you have some sort of idea of what you want to do, maybe maybe not what you want to do as in, oh, I know I want to do this job. It's like, okay, I want to work in this field or I want to help people or, you know, I want to do more research. You know, once you have that, then you can just start searching for things that allow you to do that, right? Um, and, you know, I think, I think taking the time to do that is incredibly valuable. And then finally, I would say just to them, you know, the job market, whatever you do is hard. Like the academic job market is hard, but trust me, getting a government job, getting any sort of job is hard. Um, And just remember that it's like, it's, you know, a marathon, not a sprint, you know, like you have to just be, be firm in knowing what you want to do and knowing, okay, these are the things I'm okay to settle with, settle for, and these are the things that I have to have, right? And no matter how sort of bleak it can be, because um, there were certain potential opportunities that I could have had before I got this position that I were offered, and it was getting into the process where I was like, I should accept something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I talk with my family, and they're like, do you really want this? And I'm like, I really don't want to keep living at home. Like I, I, I turned 30 um, September 22nd this year. Right. And one of my own mental things is like, I don't still want to be at home when I'm 30. You know, it was just a mental thing that I had. Um, but my parents and my family, and I'm very lucky that I have people like them in my life. They were like, they were able to kind of touch me back in and be like, listen, but you really don't want this. Like you want to, get out of the house and you want to live on your own again, but like, is this worth this position? And it wasn't. And I said, no, and it was really hard to say no to some, to, to some of those jobs. Um, But I finally got the thing that, um, that I'm like, I, I, I held out and I'm really happy that I waited and you know, reminding myself, Oh, these are the things that, that I care about. I live in Washington, DC. I have cousins in Maryland. I have family in Virginia. I'm surrounded by my support system. When I was in South Bend, Indiana, I was completely alone. Mm. I was by myself in the cold, Midwest, never been in before in my life. And those years were hard. It added to my mental health and it was deleterious and made me depressed and added to that. Um, here, when I moved here, I had a baked in family and support system from the get go. Um, 
So yeah, so I would I would tell them that I would tell them just know what you want, do the research necessary, and be willing to put in the time and effort. And it'd be okay if it takes a while. It's gonna take a while, um, but keeping hold to that guidepost will help you land somewhere that you you really want to be. Um, and yeah. That was awesome. And one thing I wanted to follow up on, I think it's important for a lot of PhDs who are looking to make that transition. Don't get so caught up on, you know, the shiny bells and whistles and, oh, it's this salary, it's this signing bonus, because, yeah, that's great. But if you might be making money, but are you going to be happy? Are you going to have peace? Are you going to feel fulfilled? And money can't provide that or the benefits or the notoriety that may come with working with a particular company. You want to make sure that you know what's important to you so that you make decisions from a place um, uh, with your well-being at the forefront instead of just going and chasing after whatever you think is going to get you the most money or the most benefits or whatever else you're looking for outside of what you know that you need to thrive. And the goal is not just to to survive, but to thrive. Yes. And just to add, um, I would also say, I think you made this point earlier, and I think it's incredibly important to to note. um, It's so hard not to compare yourself to your colleagues. It's Mm -hmm. so hard not to compare yourself to so-and-so who has three or four journal publications and is about to get their book published. It's really Mm -hmm. hard to not compare yourself to somebody who just got a tenure track job at a really good university. Mm -hmm. And I would say to people that, you know, it's, it's hard to not compare yourself because you're kind of, you're, it's, you're all in the same place. Right. Mm -hmm. But I would say that it's like, you never know how that person is, what their other, what they're dealing with, what their situation is and what their situation might be work, might work for them. And they, that might be great, but I think also it is coming back and tapping into yourself and being like, okay, you know, it's not about the success maybe that's going on right now. I think it's more so about how can you make sure that you are ultimately happy in that success and also knowing how do you define success? Like for me, if, if you're going through the, the traditional metrics of what a successful postgraduate student would be, I'm technically not successful. I didn't get a tenure track job. I'm not a professor. I, you know, I, I don't hit those barometers of success, but. For your um, definition of success. Exactly. But my definition of success, I'm, I'm ecstatic. Yeah. I get to live in Washington, D.C. I get to work in the government. I get to help people ultimately doing things that I know are going to help people stay in their homes or find a place to live. Um, I am happy with the amount I make and I I feel comfortable. I live comfortably. Mm -hmm. I get to live on my own. I have a a single apartment. Like Mm -hmm. the things that matter to me, Mm -hmm. especially like where I was a year ago, I feel successful. I feel happy. And I think that redefining what success is, success isn't what everybody else thinks success is. It doesn't have to be that. Success really can be what you define it. And that's why I always say, like, you got to know your bliss. You got to follow your bliss because that's going to be the thing. That'll be the guiding light that really allows you to determine what success really is. That is the perfect ending note. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. 
Marianne, this was amazing. Um, so everyone, thank you so much for walk, watching. Make sure that you subscribe to our channel. If you want to share your story, just send us a quick email. We'll be happy to add you to our lineup. All right, y'all have a great rest of your day. Bye.